Thanks for listening to Mosaic, a Jesus-centered communities podcast. Our goal is to help people experience a Jesus-centered life. You can find out more about us at welcometomosaic.info. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it so others can hear it as well. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Hey, we are in the third week of a walk through the book of Philippians, and it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And and this is a man who completely transformed history. Uh, His conversion is one of the definitive moments in all of recorded human history, I I think. And his life, his, his writings, his theology would go on to shape much of Western culture. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at a person like Paul, I find myself wondering, what happened inside of you that turned you from this Pharisee into a disciple of Jesus? You know, I see the life, I see the fruit, I've read the books, but what happened inside to produce such an incredible transformation? Would you say it's safe to say that Paul was thoroughly transformed? Yes, good job. You're better than the first service. Had to ask them twice. Um, No, he's he's not partially transformed. This isn't like a pseudo-transformation. This is a complete transformation. Now, C.S. Lewis, um, his personal secretary, knew him when he was an atheist. Knew him when he was wrestling with God and knew him after he became a Christian. And then knew him after he wrote uh, Chronicles of Narnia. So he watched what he did with the money, with the fame. He gave most of the money away. He pushed the fame away. He carefully wrote letters to people who wrote him. He wanted to honor everyone. And here's what he said about C.S. Lewis. He said, he was the most thoroughly converted man I've ever met. Now, we don't necessarily like that word. It can be a little charged in today's culture, converted. But just imagine that someone who is around you all the time is saying that you are the most thoroughly converted or thoroughly transformed person that they know. Uh, I've been married for 17 plus years. Got married when we were five. Um, And I don't know uh, if my sweet wife would say that Ben Todd is the most thoroughly transformed man she's ever met. Um, I think she'd say he's a good man. He's moving in the right direction. I'm grateful for his sanctification uh, because the first like eight years or so, not great. Um, But the most thoroughly transformed man I've ever met, like those are profound words. So today, we have the privilege of getting inside Paul's mind and looking at what produced such a deep transformation. We're going to study the anatomy of a thorough transformation. And Paul is sharing with, this, with the Philippian church because he's, he's worried about people sneaking in and sabotaging thorough transformation amongst the Philippians. 
Now you'll remember, if you've been here, he started his letter by talking about the importance of rejoicing in the Lord, and he talks about the beauty of the gospel. He's, he prayed a prayer that they would grow in love. In chapter 2, he, he goes on and talks about how being like Jesus should shape our community, that we have to be transformed in the way that we treat people, and now... He's responding to the threat of people coming in, trying to sabotage that work. And so in this third chapter, Paul gives us the anatomy of a thorough transformation. He, he shares and he opens up about what it is that made him change. So the first thing with that is Paul's conversion required rejecting destructive religion. You know, Paul was angry at the, the things that sabotaged a full transformation. Look at what he says. He's, he's talking about these, you know, toxic self-righteousness. Um, Jesus talks about toxic self-righteousness too. He said, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, that, that just a little bit will poison the work of grace in your midst. And so Paul says in verse 2, watch out for these dogs. These evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. And so here's what's happening. Uh, the Philippians, they're going well. And then a group of leaders, they show up. And it's probably the same kind of group that shows up uh, in the church in Galatia. And so this is a group that's essentially saying, look, Jesus is, is great, but he's not enough. You, you have to follow the law. And that there are these things that you can do to add to your salvation. And these people were, were very judgmental, very self-righteous, and they would look at Gentiles or they would look at anyone who was living outside of the, the covenant system of Judaism, and they would call them dogs. So dogs in ancient Rome were not like cute little lap dogs that you could, you know, put in your purse and take for a walk with you. Um, these were street dogs, and they would walk around the city, and they would scavenge. So they looked at these Gentiles as people who were literally, they're just like scavenging through hedonism and philosophy and religion, just finding whatever they can in there. But Paul, he says, no, actually, you're the dogs, you're the evildoers. You're practicing your faith in such a way that you're making something evil of it. And this group is infiltrating the church at Philippi, and so Paul's reacting and responding to them. Now, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, uh, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, I believe that human, human beings, we all feel two things inherently with, within ourselves. Um, we feel our beauty and we feel our brokenness. You know, we, we understand, we recognize that there is something about us that's remarkable. And we know that there's something about us that's also completely broken. We cannot heal ourselves. And so surprisingly, the majority of people try to deal with these feelings through religion. 
We do this by measuring ourselves, and it's exactly what Paul is addressing in this passage. He says, we don't boast in the flesh, that, that we do not boast in our own performance. He's going to talk about properly boasting in the right things. So why don't we boast in our performance? Why, why do we reject legalism? Well, it's because legalism devours joy. Paul Church, not the Apostle Paul, um, but Paul Church, last week he touched on this, right? He said that legalism is exhausting. And the reason for that is you cannot rejoice in the Lord when you're trying to earn your salvation. It is very hard when you're insecure and unsure to also at the same time be filled with joy. And so the trouble with legalism is that you're never sure that you're really in. And you can't have joy because you're insecure. Because you're earning it. In Galatians 5, Paul warns, and he says this, he says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So he's warning. Like religion manifest through the flesh destroys Christian community. And so maybe you're actually just like coming back to church after being in, in a really legalistic community and it's hurt you. Bitten. Devoured. It can be painful. It's a fragile salvation. You're only as good as your current performance, which makes you prideful when you're doing well, right? Like, oh, how could you not spend time with God? Like, I do so much of that. Or when you're not spending time with God, it's like, I'm the worst. I'm so terrible. I need to do better. And so you vacillate between pride and despair. That sounds fun, doesn't it? How many of you are like, yes, I'll have one of those? Uh, vacillating on an emotional roller coaster between pride and despair? It's a performance-based identity, and it's a comparative community. And so Paul says, we don't do that. We don't have confidence in the flesh. Instead, we're going to have a joyful confidence that is found in Jesus. And he says in verse 3, he says, we are the circumcision. That, that it's we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. And see, there's just, there's such a relief in the human spirit when grace becomes the deepest part of your operating system. Grace says, there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. And we typically go, well, yeah, yeah, but, but, but no, 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 no. Like, we, we need to receive this. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you any more. And there is nothing you can do to make him love you any less. That's grace. And, and so Paul says in Romans that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Like while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. So if he loves you when you're an enemy, like how many of you are earning your salvation as an enemy? The grace of God is unmerited favor. It's something we don't deserve. It's a free gift. And do you know how wonderful it is to receive the free gift of righteousness that Jesus offers? You, you no longer have to worry about your performance. In, in essence, you can say, I'm with him. Yeah, I'm with him. Like he can get you in anywhere, right? Have you ever been around someone who's like quasi-famous? You have like access and privileges to things that you normally don't. And you're just like, yeah, I'm with him. But when you're on your own, it's like, who am I? And see, this is the beauty of being united with Christ. Tozer, he, he puts it this way. He says, faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. All of us are gazing on something. For the most part, our gazing is on our inadequacies, our shame, our failures, our insecurities, our inconsistencies, and it produces no confidence. But when we gaze, when the gaze of the soul is on Jesus and what he's done, there's stability. There's a rootedness. There's a, there's a confidence that's not shaken by what's going on around you. And so Paul, he gets this. So you want to ask Paul, like, what happened? Like, how were you so thoroughly transformed? And he's going to say this, I, I stopped trusting in my flesh, my own accomplishments, and I started trusting in Jesus. And it brought this inner liberation. It, it brought freedom. And so he continues on. He's saying, you think you're good. Like, I was real good. Like, this is all the things I did. Perfect. According to the law, blameless. In terms of being in the inner circle, a Pharisee. I had everything I needed. But there's nothing that I'm clinging to now. And so ask yourself, when you gaze inwardly, what are you looking at? What is your soul fixed on? How you're doing right now? Or is it based on what Jesus has already done for you? Are you struggling with your performance? Or enjoying Jesus' performance on your behalf? If you want to be thoroughly transformed, it starts by getting grace into your spirit. Because legalism devours joy. Number two, if you were to say to Paul, like, what is it that transformed you? He would say, it's a complete reorientation around the person of Jesus. It's a complete revolution around the person of Jesus. Have you ever fallen in love? Anyone? Show hands. Fallen in love? Few of us. Few of us that are ashamed to admit it. That's okay. Um, what do you do? You reorient your life. You're like, right? 
I've lost many a friend to newfound love. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's what love does. Your friend, you know, starts dating someone. It starts getting serious. And you're like, where did my bro go? It's like he started dating and then boom, gone. You reorient your life around what you love. Not around what you believe, but around what you love. And this is what happened to the Apostle Paul. Paul has this encounter with Jesus. The thing that he encounters, it's the person of Jesus. And it literally took everything that he was measuring and it reoriented it. I mean, look at what he says here. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And so Paul, he's saying something really interesting here. He's, he's using accounting language. So if that's your world first, I'm sorry. Um, I'm a creative, so that sounds painful. But um, some of you love it, and that's great. So if you've ever worked in accounting or, or financing, though, you have uh, two columns. I know there's lots more columns, but we're keeping it simple here. Two columns. You got a profit column and a loss column, right? And so what Paul's doing, he's basically saying, here's what used to be in my profit column. Religious performance, adherence to the law, self-righteous devotion to the scriptures. But I realized that all of that, that was me. And now I've put those things in the loss column. I was trying to earn that myself. And now everything that I was persecuting, everything that I was fighting against, all of that is now in the profit column. And it's not just that these are in the profit column and these are in the loss column. They're in the like, I can't believe I ever believed that crap column. Now some of you, don't get mad at me for using the C word in church. Because Paul, let me, let me explain. Paul uses this word, uh, skabalon. So it's a very strong word. It's Greek. Um, here's the Greek definition. Any refuse as the excrement of animals, offscourings, rubbish, dregs of things, worthless and detestable. And so he's basically saying, like, all of this stuff, it's poopy. For your Ted Lasso fans. Um, he, he says, you know, what happens in comparative value where everything that you thought you got your sense of worth from, your, your significance from, your identity, your courage, your confidence from, now it's worthless and detestable. And here's what you have to see. It's poop, eh? When it's compared to Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you will cling to anything. It's all worthless, though, if it's compared to Jesus. Have you ever seen one of those hoarder shows? 
You know, like someone gets obsessed with like just stuff. They're collecting all this stuff and there's rats, there's fecal matter. They're like building tunnels to get through all the stuff and the friends come in and they have an intervention and then they start like cleaning out the house and there's dumpsters, they're throwing everything away. You know, nobody watches that show and goes, you know what? I think that's what I'd like to give my life for. All the stuff that they're throwing out right now. But Paul's saying, if you meet Jesus, like if you, if you really meet him, everything you trusted in, it's going to be reoriented. And compared to the beauty of Jesus, it's all going to seem like the kind of crap you just throw away. It, it doesn't win your heart anymore. It's an extraordinary transformation. Like, have you ever met someone who just changes their, their entire value system and, and everything they loved? They just, they no longer care about it. And for Paul, what changed him was an encounter with Jesus. Now, uh, you may have never heard of a man named John Wimber. But John Wimber was the founder of the Vineyard Movement. So the Vineyard Movement is a charismatic movement that was birthed from the Jesus Movement. I know there's a lot of movements. Um, and he was deeply influential in the start of the Vineyard. He was also a very gifted jazz musician and songwriter. And so he has this reorientation moment, not unlike Paul had. Um, so have you ever heard of the Righteous Brothers? I see a generational line based on the color of your hair. If it's one color, uh-huh. If it's another color, like, hmm, hmm. Um, so Google it if, if you are in that camp. Uh, you've lost that love and feeling. So Wimber is a part of this band. They're uber successful, and he quits the band. And one of the band members comes and sees him. He's, he's working in a machine shop. He's quit this like awesome band experience. You're making it big. And he's working in a machine shop. And he says, John, have you lost your mind? And, and I love his response. He says, yes, I've lost my mind. I've met Jesus. And I don't plan on ever getting it back. His wife said that he was so thoroughly transformed by the beauty of Jesus that he went around his apartment, he got all of his awards, all of his music, he put it in boxes, and then he tells her, let's get in the car. They drive to the garbage dump, he dumps all the things he's worked for his entire life, he sells all his instruments, and his wife says, I have never been more proud of my husband than in that moment. What kind of transformation makes a man do something like that? Now, what you might not know, depending on how you answered that question and the hair color, um, is there was a time in history where there wasn't contemporary Christian worship. It, it was all hymns, all the time. And now, we, you know, we work the hymns in. Um, well, Wimber almost single-handedly invented contemporary Christian music. And it was all birthed in a moment of sacrifice. 
where he's just throwing out everything that used to matter to him. It's garbage. And what comes out of it is a worship movement that has covered the earth. It's only an encounter with the person of Jesus that reorients your values like this. And this is what happened to Paul. Uh, look what he says. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation of his sufferings. Now, the word know Christ here, know, is not the idea of like knowing information. Like I've read the Bible or I listen to my favorite preacher on a podcast when I'm working out, or, you know, just like I know God. It's a different kind of knowledge. This is not knowing about God. It's the encounter of God himself. Like, this is the idea of intimate, experiential knowledge of Jesus. Good theology will not get you up in the morning. Good theology is not enough under the weight of temptation to keep you faithful to Jesus. It's only an encounter with the person of Jesus that has the power to do this. So Paul didn't say, you know what? I had a worldview shift and now I'm changed. No, he said, I've met Jesus and the beauty of Jesus is changing me. And I think this is important because a lot of times we settle for less than a full transformation. We shift our worldview, we change our theology, or we, we maybe upgrade our morality, but, but we don't get that full, deep transformation. And that's why faith can feel like a duty or an obligation. Imagine, you visit the Apostle Paul. He's, he's in prison, and at this point, he's, he's probably in his 50s. He's in prison, and he's probably more alive than the entire Roman Empire. He's saying things like, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. Like, what do you do with a man who's that in love? You can't shut him down. And a lot of us, we haven't been fully transformed or we've had an insufficient encounter with the person of Jesus. So we're not waking up with a holy ambition. We're not dreaming at night about what it is that God wants to do in us and, and through us because we've settled for less than what Jesus offers. And I've got to tell you, when you are fully transformed, your imagination explodes. C.S. Lewis's imagination got better after he met Jesus, not worse. His devotion got more intense after he met Jesus. And you're, maybe you're sitting there like, yes, like I want that. How, how do I get it? I remember at some point in my childhood, I discovered you can burn down the entire city of Los Angeles if you have a magnifying glass. I think I was like eight years old. I was at my grandparents' house. There was not a lot to do there. No Super Nintendo. I mean, it was, it was hard, guys. Um, and so I would make these piles of leaves. You ever do this? 
And I'd grab my, my Nana's magnifying glass and I would just let the sun do its thing. Lord help an ant if it walked by. Um, sorry, that's, that was bad. Forgive me. Um, so there was this one time in particular, I remember I just thought like, oh no, we're going to need the fire department here. Like this is a blazing inferno. It was like four inches high. So I was like eight. I was terrified. But, but here's the point. Thomas Merton says this about the Gospels. He says, the mystery of Christ in the Gospel concentrates the rays of God's light and fire to the point that it sets fire to the spirit of the man. So here's what happens. is You, you, you take the Gospels... The, the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and you put that over your life, and you sit under it. You watch God illuminate his word and highlight the gospels till it catches your spirit on fire. Um, in, in our life group, we've been watching The Chosen, and I love The Chosen. It just has this way of like bringing Jesus to life in a way that's like, like really invigorating. I don't know if you've, if you've watched and you've felt this way, but I, sometimes I'll watch the show and I'm just like, oh, I'm done. I'm like, yeah, let's go. I'm going to go move that mountain in, in Jesus' name. It's going to happen and, you know, it's going to be in his spirit by his power and you just get all fired up. And so what it's done for me is it's gotten me to just start listening to the Gospels. Just bringing Jesus to life, meditating on who he is, on what he's done for me, what he's done for the world. And I find myself asking, like, who is this man that forgives his enemies when he's dying on the cross? Like, he's just built different. Like, you come at me, I'm going to come back at you. So don't do it. And, and then I'll, I'll apologize. You know, I'm, I'm working on it. Not, not thoroughly transformed yet. But imagine being crucified and your instinct is, Father, forgive them. What kind of heart is that? He's betrayed with a kiss. His, his ministry happens in the presence of betrayal. But he's not bitter. Like, what kind of person is this? And so I feel the extraordinary love of Jesus in the Gospels just penetrating deep into my spirit. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're not reading or, or listening to the Gospels, like slowly, meditatively, daily, you're missing out on a divine encounter with Jesus that he'll use to transform your life. You have to reorient out of love, out of gratitude, but you reorient everything in your life around the person of Jesus. And look at what Paul says uh, in verse 13. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. What? Like, Paul, you've uh, planted a bazillion churches. You've written most of the New Testament. You're in prison for your faith. But he says, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. 
But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what's ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Kierkegaard says this. He says, being a saint is to want one thing. Like that's the essence of a saint. And here Paul is saying, that is the one thing I do in my life. One Catholic scholar said this, there's really only one tragedy in life. And he doesn't say it's, it's not never getting married. It's not never having kids. It's not failing in your career or, or not making it big. No, he says there's really only one tragedy in life, and it's not becoming a saint because you're destined to be one. And so Paul's language is so intense. It's like forgetting what's behind, like straining. Think Usain Bolt at the finish line, just sticking your chest out, straining with everything that you have. And, and you can't live in your past failures, and, and you can't rely on your future achievements. You can only reorient your entire life around the person of Jesus and watch him transform you. So let's move into to application. Like, how, how do we do this? How do we live as thoroughly transformed people? You know, a life that's, that's filled with joy in any circumstance, where we're not burdened by the weight of our performance and we reorient our lives around Jesus. Well, Paul is showing us that he's not focused on his temporary circumstances, but instead is focused on the upward call. I'm not dependent on my season. In any season, I have this upward call and I'm focused on the prize. I'm running the race to win. And so I think it starts with having a vision to be modern day saints. You know, a vision that says, there are many things that I do, but there's only one thing that drives me, and that's Jesus. I have this one giant yes that says a thousand no's for me. And the temptation that we face today is admiration in place of imitation. You look at someone and you think, you know, I should be more like that. But I can't. Because they're like a saint. They're like next level. And it's really an absurd way to think about it. But I think it's how most of us think about it. But when you study the lives of saints, you realize they're just like you. There's nothing super unique about them, nothing ultra special. They're just people. Look at the heroes in the, in the Bible. So many of them with massive and clear flaws. Abraham says uh, his wife is his sister because he's afraid of being killed. Moses is a murderer. King David, an adulterer who then kills his lover's husband. Peter denies even knowing Jesus because he's afraid for his life. Paul persecuted and killed Christians for their faith. 
Here's a more modern example. Uh, Henri Nouwen. He was a Catholic writer. He wrote like 39 books translated into 30 languages. He was kind of a big deal. Um, here was his tension. And I'll be honest, this really like messes with me. And I wonder if it will do the same with you. Listen to what he said. He said, I want to be a great saint, but I also want to experience all the sensations that sinners experience. I want to withdraw into the silence of prayer, but I don't want to miss anything happening in the world. I want to bury myself in anonymity among the poor, but I also want to write books, be known by others, see places, meet people, and do interesting things. He's acknowledging the tension that so many of us feel. And so some of his friends reading his journal, they said that he was complex, anguished, anxious, struggled with same-sex attraction his entire life, made a vow of celibacy, never gave into it. He was hypersensitive, struggled to keep his vows and commitments to Jesus. They said that he could go on a stage, he was an amazing preacher, that he could go on a stage and mesmerize an audience, then step off and say, I feel absolutely alone. Will you hold me? I feel like no one cares. Do you know what he was? He was a human. Beautiful and broken but he stopped trusting in his own performance and he started trusting in Jesus. He started considering everything else rubbish compared to Jesus. He started failing in the direction of sainthood. He just like kept going forward. He's failing in the direction of sainthood instead of failing backwards. And then over the course of time, he ended up becoming a complex temptation-filled, fragile, beautiful, thoroughly transformed follower of Jesus. Now, here's why this is important. Because what he teaches us about modern-day saints is that the key to sainthood in modern life is the wrestle to become who God says you already are. You don't have to become someone else. You have to become who you are. See, we live in a world where the secular saints are self-defined by chosen identity, and the Christian saints are those who are self-denied, and their identities are chosen by God. And so we have to learn to become who God says we are. So the question is this, where is your confidence drawn from? You need to take all your brokenness, your, your struggles, your sin, your dysfunction, your fears, your, your insecurity, your failures, and you just throw them towards Jesus with a giant yes over your life and see what the grace of God will do. To close with this, uh, Jesus, he tells two parables in Matthew 13, the pearl of great price and the treasure 
lost in the field. And the way I've always read those is, uh, and understood them to mean that Jesus is so beautiful that I've got to give up everything to get him. But do you know what that sounds like? To me, it sounds a little bit like religion. It sounds a bit performance-based. And if you look at the parables, there seems to be this consistent theme of who's lost and who's looking. In Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables, uh, three stories. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And in each of these, we're the ones that are lost. And God is the one who is looking. And so I think these parables actually teach us that we are the treasure buried in a field. And that Jesus, for some reason that's like almost impossible to comprehend, Jesus is the one who sold everything to get the field, which is our lives. That, that we are this, this pearl of incredible value and that, that Jesus is the merchant who's been searching for us. And when he finds us, he gives up everything because you are worth it. Jesus sees in us what we do not see in ourselves. There is nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. He just loves you. And so I wanna give you some time to, to respond. And in this moment, just ask, am I thoroughly transformed? Am I trusting in my own joy-killing self-righteousness? Or am I trusting in Jesus? And then ask, have I reoriented my whole life around the person of Jesus? My joy is not found in circumstances, nor is it found in my performance, but it's found in Jesus and what he has done for me. So let's give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to speak to us in this moment. Thanks for listening to this week's message. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We invite you to connect with us. If you'd like to give to this ministry, you can do so at welcometomosaic.com slash give. Have a great week!